Hi, and welcome to Zernona Clayton, the podcast. I'm your host, broadcast journalist, and also a family friend, Michelle Miller. And we'll hear from Ms. Clayton, or as I like to call her, Biggie. Big or the queen of the town. She is an incredible, wonderful, brilliant woman who for the last 93 years has been an activist, a civil rights visionary, and a broadcast media pioneer. Oh, what a life she's led. When did it get, would you say, dangerous? Every day was dangerous. Because even if it's not here in your, your own neighborhood, all of Alabama, St. Augustine, Florida, you know, there were hot spots. When I drive down toward Birmingham, I look at the trees. I always ask myself, you know, I wonder how many black people are still hanging in those trees. Because my job was to take care of the injured. They get sick, get hurt, get killed. We have to go and take care of the situation. So a lot of times I had to take men to the hospitals. And so there was something all the time. There was a hot spot somewhere every day, every day. Having to witness that, I mean, is that still with you? Well... I know firsthand what happened. So uh, that I think about that a lot. And I can't drive down the highways without rethinking it. So it never leaves you once you see severity like that, mistreatment of people only because of color. It does something to you inside that's unforgettable. I still carry those pains of the suffering that I witnessed, you know. When, when you think about, I mean, everyone remembers 63, the march. They remember 65, Selma. They remember 67, 68, Memphis. What do you remember of those times? Everything, everything. I remember everything. I remember when the guys left to go to Birmingham, to go to St. Augustine. You have to help prepare them as, as they're leaving. Uh, and you know the details of why they're going there. You know, what's, what's the problem here? You had to help organize. Um, well, what would that consist of? Uh, well, get ready. How many, how many men do you think we need? But there's always somebody on the other end. You're feeding you information, so you know you need probably 50 men. Uh, or going to have to stay here a long time. This is serious. This is no play. You know, like every phase of it, you have to get all, you, you can't go half-cocked. So you have to know what your opposition is and how many people you need to work in the field. When you would get a call, because, you know, everyone knows about the letter from the Birmingham jail. Right. But Dr. King was jailed over and over and over and over again. Not really. No? No. Not really. Okay. Mm-hmm. Educate But me. you read about all the times he was jailed, but nobody inside the movement wanted him jailed. Our lawyer and our bail bondsman uh, company, you know, they didn't want him in jail. They had the money, but he's a target all the time. So you've got to strategically position him 
But if he's in jail, he can't object. You know, you can't get a voice from him, so you don't want him in jail. And the reason he ended up in Birmingham jail is that when they had the organizing meeting the night before to say what we're going to do tomorrow, Dr. King says, I'm going. They pleaded with him, please, don't you go, because we need you out here. We need you free. But if you remember, everybody does. He said, I have to go. I can't let my men go all the time. I must go. He went in that jail. He allowed himself to be jailed. And he wrote that letter that's still memorable. Some people call it the best piece of literature you can ever find anywhere. Wasn't it written on a toilet? Yes, yes. Toilet paper? And they slipped him newspaper because he had nothing in there to write on. Toilet paper or those who could go to visit him would carry a pad, you know. He found a piece of a leaf. He wrote something on a, a leaf, blew in the window. But while he was there, he wrote a letter to the ministers and people who are supposed to be clothed in the word of God. Treat everybody right. And here we are, you know, imprisoned. But we, and I say we because I was a part of the movement, didn't want him locked up. He's no value locked up, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So... He insisted this time to go. And that's how we got this masterpiece. But didn't he almost miss the March on Washington as a result of that? No. No? No. Uh, The March of Washington had a lot of components on its own. That was not one of them. That's why I'm asking, because I had heard that or read that Harry was responsible for bailing him out of Birmingham because it was so close to the march. The march. Well, in that sense, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, in that sense, yes. But because, see, the march on Washington had so many pieces. Compon- yeah, it wasn't his main thing. <clears throat> Belafonte did do a lot uh, to help bail him out. And at first, he didn't want to come out. So they finally convinced him, you know, we need you on the outside. And that's how he got out. But the march on Washington. The march was a united effort of all the black heads of all the civil rights organizations. And they went to talk to Washington about the fact we're going to have this march. And not only the president, but Robert Kennedy definitely didn't want the march because he said, oh, they're going to keep policemen busy all day and, you know, massacres, who knows what. And they said, oh, no. And we got to do this. And it's planned, and we're going ahead with it. Well, what was interesting about the march is that the heads had a little conflict meeting because everybody wanted to be first. And so the lineup became an issue. And you know what's interesting today? Martin Luther King said, listen, guys, take me out of this squabble. Just put me last. And you all can argue about the one through five position. And I bet you, Michelle, if you took a poll right now, nobody would know who was first. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember. And I was in the room with, um, with Ed, my husband at the time, who was helping to draft Martin's speech. And the way they did it was interesting to watch because they had adjacent rooms in the hotel. And as Ed would finish writing the part, he was contributing to the speech and He'd let Martin know. And that was the part that I can talk about. 
is everybody claims to have been the writer of the speech. And it's so interesting that Martin didn't want a crowd. He wanted the clarity of his independent thinking. And so as he had a thought, he would tell Paul or Ed uh, what was going in this part, no, include this, include that. And so the two of them were collaborating on his speech. But at the same time, they were monitoring the crowd. They'd call somebody and said, any buses here yet from Alabama? No. Anybody here from North Carolina? No. No buses. 10 o'clock at night? No buses. Now they were told they're going to have thousands. I don't even remember the figure that they had. Thousands. We're expecting thousands. And at 10 o'clock at night, no thousands. No hundreds. And it wasn't until that time between the, the midnight, over midnight, uh, the crowds ended up coming. But they were worried about the fact there would be no crowds. We put out this long information sheet that says there'll be everybody in America's coming because we all agree we've been mistreated. And it doesn't look good. Well, when day broke, there were buses from everywhere. People from everywhere. President Kennedy, he was tuned to the TV to see what was going on. His brother had all the militia out on the streets because he knew there were going to be killings and starvings and massacres and whatever else with all these people coming into this area. And when the march was over, the president sent Dr. King a message that I want all of you in the White House the minute this is over. And some people knew that he was objecting to it. They thought they're going to get a reprimand. He sent for them to come to the office to tell them two things. There was not one arrest in the whole city area, not one drunkard, not one fight anywhere that day. Not one. Not one. And the president ended up with a a semi-apology, like, we're sorry, but this was a crowd we won't forget. It was peaceful, energetic, supportive. And these were people who wanted freedom and justice for all America. We want to live peacefully. We all want the same thing. That's what they were saying by their presence. And the president praised them highly for that. How did you leave that day? What did you leave with? Oh, I, I left energized, um, worried, though, that maybe on the way home, you know, it might be a different picture. Uh, I, was, I was always afraid it seemed like, oh, something's going to happen. This is not going to end as beautifully as it looks. You know, I was just afraid of that, and I was glad that I was wrong about thinking that because it was a beautiful expression. It looked like the picture that unity is supposed to look like. Everybody wants the same thing. And Martin Luther King's speech was, you know, he was at his best. It was not the speech that Ed and he had written together. Uh, These were things that he had added at the end, like people told the story of Mahalia Jackson. 
uh, said, Martin, tell them about that, you know, mountaintop. They were such good friends, though. I really loved their relationship. And so her pleading with him, due to, I have a dream. And that's when he threw it in. Uh, it was not a I understand he was bombing. It was not on the... I heard he was bombing. Well, I don't know about that. I, I'm not going... I'm not. He wasn't getting the reaction that uh, we I'm all not, know. I'm not going with all you that. on that. <laughs> I didn't see that. I didn't see that part. <laughs> uh, it was going to... But shoot, they were tired, probably. Yes. Uh, they'd been there a long they'd time. They'd been there a long time. Yeah. He was the last speaker. Yeah. Or right. close to yeah. it. Oh, no, he wasn't. The last. Yeah. So, how many speeches can you hear? Yeah, yeah. But um, they waited for him, though. They they knew of that crowd of speakers. We had good speakers. They all, all had something to say, but they knew Martin Luther King could do it. Did you ever lose that foreboding? No. So the years would click by, and you had, you know, some instances that were enough to still, like, warn you that danger was always just a step away. Well, there was always some kind of, I think maybe it was a wish, you know, I wish someone would kill that guy off, you know. But I was with him in Los Angeles, and he always waited till after he spoke to eat and relax. So he just wanted his close friends around him. And so this night, um, I was in the group that was invited to dinner with him, and there was a guy on television who said if that coon comes again to Los Angeles, I've got 10 sticks of dynamite waiting for him. And that night, a, uh, an alert came on the TV. The guy said, I think I got him now, because he was in Los Angeles. And so it you know, disturbed the whole city, of course, but it wasn't true at all. And he ended up the first one to laugh about it. <laughs> Boy, here we are having a good time, and they got my death here on the TV. So when he really did have the death on TV, I missed it because I'd heard that before. I had driven him to the airport uh, to go to Memphis, and he was coming right back. And so I didn't believe he had been shot, and I talked to him that afternoon. So it was kind of hard to, to absorb, you know, that the reality is they've gotten him. I mean, what was that process like? Here you are, a workhorse in the movement. You're confidant, you're your closest aide to the, not just to Dr. King, but to his wife. You're semi-caretaker of his family. I can describe like almost every minute that I spent from the time I put him out at the airport to go to Memphis through the time I saw him come back. It's indelibly stamped in your head. It still seems unreal because the action leading up to it didn't give any warning that trouble was coming. So when I put him out, well, the first thing, though, we thought was really unusual was the way the children acted, the boys especially. When I drove up in the driveway to pick him up, 
he was not ready. He was never ready. He was always late. So I expected to have to wait for him. But when I got out of my car and came to the door, the boys were pleading with him, Daddy, don't go. Please, Daddy, don't leave us. And he said, I'll be right back. I'm just going down for March, and I'll be right back. Now, they've seen their dad go to the airport a hundred times, and it never bothered them because they knew he was going to the airport, and then a day or two or whatever, he'll be back. And um, he finally was able to retrieve his uh, briefcase and start out the door, and then they blocked the door, pleading, pleading. Daddy, please don't go. Daddy, please don't go. Finally got the door open. They ran ahead of him and blocked the bottom step so he couldn't get past. He said, why are you all acting like this? I'm telling you, I'm coming right back. That didn't satisfy them. They raced him all the way to the car. Dr. King got the door open, and they almost dragged him out of the car. And he managed to get them away from the door. Then they went and jumped on the hood of the car. And then I said to Dr. King, I said, now listen, we're going to have to do something with these boys because this is a brand new car. And, <laughs> and I ain't going to let nothing happen to my car. So we finally got them off the car. And on the way to the airport for a good five or six blocks or more, he didn't say one word to me. That was odd because we were always jabbering about something. And then he said, oh, I hate to see that. He said, um, have you ever seen these children act like that? I thought, oh, no, they've never acted like this before. He said, I think they're telling me something. I think they're saying that they're beginning to miss me now when I leave. And I'm going to change that. I've got to do something about my schedule. I can't take this. His children trying to hold the car back, literally. Now, what I forgot to include in the progression of my story is that that Sunday, which is the day before, um, they had invited me over for dinner. But uh, the children had some place to go and... Everybody was out of the house, but Coretta was ill and had been homebound for a week or so. So his mother was there. We were all kind of visiting her. And after dinner, he said, I don't think I ever heard you say anything about the fact you know I can sing well. I said, no, I heard you sing, but I didn't hear that you sang well. And he laughed. And he said, oh, well, get over there on the piano. Well, you know, I was a musician also. So he said, give me a B-flat there on the piano. And he started singing, and oh, man, he put just all the additives to the performance, you know. And so between his wife, his mother, and his friend, we were there, and he was enjoying every minute. We sang and sang and sang until the sun was going down. And I said, well, I've got to go now because i got to be back over here in the morning. After I got home and got settled, late that night, his mother called me. And she said, oh, didn't we have a great day today? I was, oh, yeah, it was most enjoyable. She said, I want you to do me a favor. 
since you're driving him to the airport, will you ask him to do something about his schedule and see if we could get more of these kinds of days? I'm his mother, and I understand how busy and how demanding his work is, but I also miss him a lot. So while we were now talking about the children missing him, I said, oh, by the way, your mother called me last night and uh, told me to put a plea in for her that she wanted more days like we could play the piano, laugh and talk and have a good family hour. And he laughed. But do you know, Michelle, that last day he was on earth, he did something unusual. He called his brother on the phone just to chat which he never did. And then he called his mother. And he told her what I had said about making the schedule lighter so we could have more family hours. And she obviously clocked what time he was shocked. And when I saw her later on that night, she said, well, I've got something to hang on to. I think I was probably the last call he made. And so she said that would be very comforting for her uh, in the years to come. But he did say to me, you know, I think I will alter my schedule because I can't have these boys missing me. You know, we can't bring children in the world and not provide time for them. But it was most unusual. I agreed that I'd never seen that. And I didn't think they ever acted like that before either. So we think there was something special in the air. For you, I mean, to live through that, who called you? Who told you? Well, I was at a restaurant uh, dealing with some people trying to get some wayward boys uh, jobs. And the maitre d' knew who I was because I went there frequently. And she wrote a note and said, did you hear about Dr. King? Well, I didn't know what she's talking about. I ignored her. But then she came back to the table and said, I hate to interrupt you, but did you see the note? And I said, yes, but I didn't quite understand it. And it was raining real hard in Atlanta that night. And she said, well, our radio is not giving us good reception, but it said something happened to him like like he got shot. And I said, well, well, maybe I'd better go to the phone. I got up, went to the phone, and they had two private lines, and both of them were busy, which was unusual. And I said, well, I think I better go over there. And I went over to the house, and as I pulled up to the driveway, the police were were bringing Mrs. King out of the house to take her to the airport. She got the report he'd gotten shot, and she said she wanted to go. And then she said, oh, I've been trying to reach you. I've got to go to Birmingham. Something happened to Martin. And will you check and see the children? Now, she had housekeeping staff, but I was very close to the children, as you know. And she asked uh, if I could just stick around closely with them and see that they were comfortable. And I told her yes. Well, as everybody now knows the story, that when she got to the airport, it wasn't long before they gave her the news. They took her to the ladies' room and told her that he not only got shot, he got killed. And uh, he's now dead. And so she decided to come back home so she'd be with the children. And Michelle, from that moment she got in the house, I was not away from her hardly any time. I saw to it that um, everything she could possibly need, uh, she would get. And 
the one call we got was from, uh, well, President, you know, President Johnson called and a lot of other people. But the call that's memorable was Bobby Kennedy, who asked Coretta, who's your spokesperson? So she said, I was. So she said, well, will you put her on the phone, too, because I have some information. He said, obviously, you need more telephone lines. And we heard on the news that you want to go and retrieve him and bring him back to Atlanta. And he said, so with that news, we have advanced a plane to Atlanta. It's at the airport right now. It's in Hangar 3. The tailgate number is 12345. The pilot's name is John Smith. And so anytime you decide to go to Memphis, all you have to do is call this number, six or seven of them. Have Zernona call and just say, you're ready to go to Memphis. The plane is ready. I also heard that the word is gone now all over the world. And so tell Zernona to call every hotel in Atlanta and tie up every room in 50-mile radius. Don't let anybody book a room except Zernona. I'll be there tomorrow and I can help guide her. And then he said, and then since we couldn't get you on the phone, it's obvious you need telephone. So Mr. John Smith of the telephone company is en route to Atlanta and he'll be there at 11.05 and we will install six straight lines at your house so you can notify and talk to people. He rattled off a hundred things to have us do right now. And um, himself? Oh, yes. Not his assistant. No, this was... This was Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy. In the midst of a campaign. Mm -hmm. Robert Kennedy Took the time to call and logistically work all of these things out with you. Oh, yes. Uh And he said, and I'll be there tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. And I'm bringing a staff of, you know, eight people. And we're going to be set up. And from that point on, um, I'll be in touch with Sernona. So, Mrs. King, you won't have to do that. She will handle that for us. I've never seen so many orders. And obviously important orders in order given and dispatched. Why? There's been so much written about the bad vibes there. Why, why do you think he went out beyond his... Oh, I think he wanted to just prove, you know, the Kennedy is not as bad as people are saying they are. That's what I think. That could be garbage if you wanted to make it that. Right now, we've got a crisis. You know, everybody, everybody I understand everybody in Timbuktu, all the heads of state, was planning to come to the funeral. You know, now Ebenezer at that time of the old church, it, it didn't have much space. Now, I don't know where all these celebrities were. I guess they all got private planes, but Michelle, it looked like it hadn't been an hour or two before Martin Luther King was pronounced dead, that these people weren't coming through Mrs. King's front door, you know, just to say to her, we're with you, you know. She'd not, not talk to her mother and her brother. And she said, can you go to your house and use your telephone? Because you didn't have two phones in their house. And she said, I've got to tell my mother 
they're probably, you know, getting bits and pieces without hearing what is the truth. So when you go home and call these people for me, you couldn't use her phone. It just, as soon as you hang up, it would ring, hang up. So as soon as I got home, I had people, your, your dad was at my house. Uh, I had four people at my house because there were no hotel rooms. They didn't have any place to stay. So as soon as I got home to use the telephone, Coretta called. Uh, I had somebody call me and said, come back. Her parents now have heard the story, so I need you here. And I turned around and came back. And I told people, I'll be easier to identify because I haven't had a bath for four days, you know. <laughs> I mean, I never got a chance to stop. I worked nonstop because in spite of the moment of grief, she had reality also like, oh, I got to wear some clothes. What am I going to wear to the funeral? And I said, uh, Coretta, you're not going to have to worry about any of that. Let me handle all of that. And I said, I'll get some things for you. But she said, uh, I want you to do my headdress for me. I want you to design something for me because I, I know I like it. And I don't want to be Jackie Kennedy, but I do want to be covered. And I said, well, you've given me a sign, but I've never had. I have never designed a, a hat before. You designed her hat? Yeah. The next day when morning broke, I went downtown, and I had no money, of course, to buy her no wardrobe. And I said, I've come to get some clothes from Mrs. King. And I didn't have to say much more, you know. He said, we're so sorry to hear this, what happened. And I said, but let me tell you why I'm here. I know she's going to need some clothing because she's not, I heard her talking on the phone about all the things she's going to do, have this press conference and go here and do the march. And so I want some clothes that she don't have to worry about. So just, I know her size. I've traveled with her. I know her size, but I have no money. But let me do this, make a deal with you. Then let me pick what I think she would like and I'll take it home and let her decide. And if she likes, we'll keep. And then the rejects, I'll bring them back and then I'll pay you. I got back to the house with all my choices and Harry Belafonte was standing in the lobby of their home. And he, I had a guy helping me bring the load in and said, what you got there? I said, an armload of clothes for Coretta because I wanted to look nice. And um, I bought all these clothes on credit. I didn't give him a dime. Belafonte went in his pocket and said, here's my credit card. I want the same thing for her. I don't care what they cost. Mm. So I took his credit card, and the next morning I went down, and I told the proprietor, I said, I'm back now. I've got nothing to return because she liked everything I brought. So all I need from you is what's the total of my bill. He said, you've got a zero balance. I said, how that happened? And he said, I'm a white man in America. And I have to assume if I'm a decent white man, I have to assume some of the responsibility of what happened in Memphis. So this will be part of my guilt. Hmm. You have no balance. Now also, I want you to look out the window. See that red building? No, just look. Don't you have to get up? Yeah. Okay, that's that. okay. 
That used to be Davidson department store that didn't allow black people to come in, except on certain days. And I knew they didn't cater to black trade, but I don't have time to worry about that. But I called down there, this only store I knew. I called down to the store and asked to speak to the head of the millinery department. And I said, I've got to design a hat for Mrs. King for her funeral presence. And uh, I don't wear hats, so I know nothing about hats. So could you help me? He said, yes. He said, um, what time do you want to come? And I said, well, I can't come now. And I said, I can't come until I have a real break of what's going on here. There's so much going on. He said, well, I tell you what, it doesn't matter what time you come. I'll have my staff wait for you. Mm. But you'll need to use the back door because the store closes at 5. And I said, well, I can't make it by 5. And he said, it doesn't matter. We'll leave the back door open. You come around the back. You think you could find the back? I said, I'm black. I know where the back door is. (laughs) So now he kept the millinery department on duty. And I said, I've never designed a hat before. She wants something that will cover. And I had a hat with me that I liked. And I said, so the frame of her head is this. And to me, this is one of her most flattering hats. So let's use this as our guide. And they said, well, okay. They got my wishes labeled. And I said, I'll need her to see it. So don't sew it, you know, just tack it so that we can get going here. And then she'll decide whether she likes it or not. And uh, we brought her home and she liked it. Her birthday is in April. And she loved red roses. And so every birthday, she got red roses from him. She said she was mad at him. The first time in all their years of marriage, she got artificial flowers. She came home one day while he was gone, and uh, there was this triple bouquet of red artificial roses, and she got mad. And when he called her back that day, uh, did you get the roses? And so she said, yes, and I'm mad about it. He said, mad? Why? He said, because I've never seen artificial roses. And he said, Coretta, I don't even know whether I'll be alive on your birthday. So take them and know that I remembered your birthday. He had on a happy birthday. Now, he was killed on April 4th, so this was had to be April 3rd. Her birthday is not till the 27th. So he knew on the 3rd that he may not be here on the 27th and left her the perennial red roses, even though they were artificial. You know, that was interesting little tidbit. There were so many interesting Mm -hmm. things. And you, you witnessed them all. Thank you for joining us for our special podcast series with the incomparable Zernona Clayton. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Big, we hope you'll come back next time for more insider stories and reflections from one of the first ladies of the civil rights movement. Subscribing makes it easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. And please, please be sure to rate and review us to help others find the show. 
This has been Zernona Clayton, the podcast, a production of Boom Integrated and DA Brand Activation Group. Our podcast is executive produced by Naima Rashad, Dennis Adamovich, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai, with post-production by Boom. I'm Michelle Miller, your host. Thanks so much for listening. And don't miss the documentary, Zenona Clayton, A Life in Black and White. Available anytime on Brown Sugar, Bounce TV's subscription video on demand service. Download the Brown Sugar app today on your phone, PC, or smart TV. Go to brownsugar.com for more information.